Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. The sound of DC used to be go go. Go go music blaring at every corner of the city. Drums, call and response, African beats laid over, Southern trap music. What would you say that is now? I don't know what is at every corner, but it's not go go. I'm Annie Reese, and this is Politico Dispatch. Hi, my name is Delise Smith-Barrow, and I'm the education editor at Politico. Politico's next Great Migration Project is a series from the recast where reporters, including Delise, explore the shift in Black populations out of American cities and how that's changing politics and power. D.C. has become very unaffordable in some ways, and because of the increased cost of housing in particular, a lot of Black Washingtonians have now left the city. Moving to the suburbs like Gogo did. And the fact that we've even reached that point where we think of the godfather of Gogo, Chuck Brown, starting it in D.C., but you have to drive out 45 minutes in Virginia to get that same sound or get that same feel. I think even that speaks to how much the city has changed in terms of population, in terms of who's wanting this music, who's vying for more opportunities to listen to it. Today, we head to D.C., but not D.C., the capital D.C., or federal government D.C., but D.C., D.C., the almost 700,000 people that live here, and the forces pushing people in and out. So at one point, D.C. was Chocolate City. In terms of the percentage of Black residents, it was somewhere around 60 percent. And now it's in the low 40s. So when you look at that significant of a drop, you have to kind of figure out why. And a lot of people say the why is in, is in housing. And you could argue that D.C.'s change in fortunes can be traced back to the election of one man, Mayor Anthony Williams. So to start, Delise, tell me about Mayor Anthony Williams becoming mayor of D.C. in 1999. What was going on in D.C. at that time and what was he trying to fix? He kind of started running D.C. before he was running D.C. So in 1995, he's appointed D.C.'s chief financial officer, which at that time was a really big deal because essentially the city has no money. The finances are a mess. Congress is basically trying to take control of it which is upsetting if you are a resident of the city, right? You're, you already mm-hmm. have taxation and, and no representation. But now um, city leaders cannot even leave the city. So that's Anthony Williams' kind of first big job for D.C. And it seems like that job goes pretty well because right after that, he becomes mayor. So he became the chief financial officer in 95. And then he starts as mayor in 99. And at that point, you know, a lot of residents have left the city because it's not doing well financially. There are some areas that still haven't quite rebounded from the riots in the 60s. -hmm. And plus, you know, we're in the 90s, which means the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. So between crime and generally people leaving the city for bigger houses, more yard space, better schools, safer neighborhoods, things like that. You know, Anthony Williams, he's taking control of the city as mayor when the city is 
kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. And so he has to do something drastic to turn it around, to make it safer in terms of crime and to just bring in more money. So what's the drastic action that he takes? He does some research and he realizes that the best way or what he thought at that time was the best way to revitalize the city is to bring in 100,000 new residents. Because bringing in more residents means um, more people paying taxes. D.C. is kind of a weird city where it's limited in terms of how it can generate revenue. Mm -hmm. There's this rule that buildings can't be but so high. So we don't have skyscrapers the way you might see in Chicago or New York. So then you have to focus on actual people. And so Mayor Williams, he focuses on bringing in 100,000 people. And then you have to kind of narrow it in terms of what kind of people do you want to bring in? You want to bring in people who have a lot of expendable cash, you know, who are higher earners. And if you have a lot of high income earners that you're bringing in, businesses that, you know, can charge people a lot, they they will come too. Mm-hmm. And he essentially accomplishes it. Yeah. I mean, it, it works in terms of there being a lot more revenue. But you spoke to some people who really lay the Black exodus we've seen over the past two decades at his feet. Why is that? It is a double-edged sword. So with Anthony Williams' successful plan, the caveat is that a lot of the people who were drawn to D.C. and are still drawn to D.C. are not Black. You know, for a long time, D.C. was Chocolate City. And people in D.C., they were really proud of the fact that this city really encompassed Black excellence. Mm -hmm. The mayors were Black. A lot of the doctors and lawyers and teachers were Black. So you didn't have to worry about, particularly if you have a family, you know, will my Black child have examples of upwardly mobile professionals who are Black that they can aspire to be like or be taught by or be Mm -hmm. nurtured by? With Anthony Williams' plan, the city became more and more non-Black, particularly more white. And so when I spoke with him, we kind of talked about that. He talks about the fact that it's hard to control demographics. I knew then what I know now, we would have tried been more dogged in trying to manage the huge inflow of investment to try to minimize uh, displacement. Uh, but it got going much faster than, you know, even faster than I expected and many of us expected. You know, finances are one thing. You can say I want this type of earner or people with this type of job, but to say I want people who are also this color, um, you know, he gave me the impression that that was much harder to accomplish. Now, D.C. is still pretty black. You know, it's more than 40 percent black. Mm -hmm. But at one point, it was like 60% Black. So that's a really, really sharp decrease. And I think that decrease is what brings a lot of people real concern. Yeah. I guess really briefly, tell me about the Chocolate City. It was a city of Black homeowners. I mean, it still has the highest rate of Black homeownership in the country, right? Yes, it does. But it's lagging behind white residents. It's lagging behind white residents. So I think that's the caveat, right? Like, now, D.C. is not, in terms of Black home ownership, 
that's going down. And then when you look at the gap between Black homeowners versus white homeowners, I think that gap is large enough where people are kind of wondering what happened. There are certain neighborhoods like Shaw, where Mm -hmm. for many, many years, a lot of the homes were owned and occupied by Black residents. Now, if you're walking around Shaw, it's a lot more diverse, a lot less Black. And then you have to wonder, what does that mean for Black Washingtonians who spent decades, you know, generations um, investing in neighborhoods like Shaw to perpetuate Black wealth? So fast forward to now, how is the gentrification happening in D.C.? unique or extreme from the patterns that we're seeing happen in, you know, other major American cities? I think that with D.C., because the Black population was so high at one point Mm -hmm. and it's sharply decreased, you know, some researchers have said that the gentrification happening in D.C. is is unmatched when you compare it to other large cities that once had these huge Black populations. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, while the the mayors have remained Black, I think one thing that's changed is that for those mayors to remain in office, continue to be elected those Black mayors, they have to connect more with white residents before you would you were being elected into office based on what black residents thought of you because black residents were the majority majority of the city yeah and i think we're sort of seeing that a little bit play out this push and pull in a current mayoral primary election where current mayor Mariel Bowser is still the favorite to win but her opponents are really running on messages that dc doesn't work for its black residents right definitely i think that you know you're totally right in terms of polling, she's still she's still you know way far ahead than her competitors. But then when you look at some of her competitors, for example, Trayon White, he's living in and serving one of the wards of the city that is still predominantly black. Mm-hmm. And I think candidates like him are making a real argument in the sense that is Muriel Bowser serving all of D.C. or just the wealthier corners of the city, which are more diverse. But what about Black Washingtonians who have been here for years, whose families have been here for years? How often is she in those communities or with the city's revitalization? Are we seeing a lot of new businesses or upgrades to schools or things like that in the predominantly Black neighborhoods? Mm-hmm. D.C. is the only city in the U.S. that is not a state, right? So if our city's politics are changing and our city's local politics sometimes get intertwined with national politics, we saw that when Muriel Bowser was kind of going head to head with President Donald Trump. You know, this was Mm. literally a local national battle playing out in front of the White House. I think it's important for people to understand the dynamics of a city that is literally like no other city in the United States. It's a seat of power federally, but locally, the mayor is kind of like what a governor would be in another state. What happens with the mayor, what happens with the city council, the implications are widespread in a way that it wouldn't be with another city. Delise Smith-Barrow, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. 
To read more stories in Politico's next Great Migration series, visit politico.com slash great migration. Also in the news, Republican presidential candidates will no longer participate in debates hosted by the Commission on Presidential Debates, which has hosted debates for over three decades. The Republican National Committee voted Thursday to withdraw from the CPD, but said it will not be withdrawing from debates altogether, only those hosted by the commission. It is unclear, however, what alternative debate method the RNC will pursue. And on Thursday, a jury convicted January 6th defendant Dustin Thompson on all six charges he faced, rejecting his effort to blame Donald Trump's campaign of disinformation about the election results for his conduct. The verdict was a validation for prosecutors' efforts to separate the actions of individual participants in the January 6th Capitol riot from Donald Trump himself. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. Dispatch's senior editor is Raghu Manavalan, and our executive producer is Jenny Ament. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>